Amen. Well, today we are talking about the death and the burial of Jesus. Next week we will be talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And next week is my last Sunday before going on a sabbatical. Our church has a very gracious policy for ministers who have been here for seven years. They're allowed to take a sabbatical, and so we're looking forward to that. I did send an email out this past Friday letting you know. So if you didn't get that email and you want to get emails like that, uh, then let us know and we'll get you updated on our email list. Uh, I will be back as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. And as I mentioned earlier, we'll be celebrating the resurrection as we always do, but we'll be giving special attention uh, next week. Today we're talking about the death and burial of Jesus. This topic is important. A, it's central to the Christian faith. It's the central event of the Christian faith. And secondly, it's practical. You know, we all experience death. Right? We experience the death of friends. We experience the death of loved ones. Uh, we're going to experience our own death. And the Christian faith doesn't ignore this. The Christian faith doesn't, doesn't uh, you know, try to walk away from this. The, Christ, the Christian faith addresses the reality of death head on. And uh, we're going to talk this morning about Christ's death, and we're going to talk about what it means for us. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Mark 15. I'm going to ask you to please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read Mark 15, verses 33 through 47, and this is the very inspired Word of God. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So last week we talked about the cross, and we said three things about it. It happened, it matters, and why it matters. And this week, we're going to talk about the death of Jesus and the burial of Jesus. And we're going to look at these same three aspects. It happened, it matters, and third, why it matters or its meaning. So first of all, let's talk about the fact that the death of Jesus happened. And let's ask this question. How do we know 
How do we know that Jesus died? One answer, of course, is the Gospel writers tell us Jesus died. Well, how did they know? Well, there were eyewitnesses. There were eyewitnesses who saw this. Look at verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. It's interesting, the disciples are basically hiding. They're nowhere to be found. A lot of people believe John was present there, but the disciples are are hiding, Uh, but the women are there. And the women are there as witnesses. They witness this, and they're mentioned. They're mentioned by name. Their specific names are given in the places where they're from. They're also mentioned because they are witnesses to where Jesus was buried. Look at verse 47. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So they see where the body is laid, and that allows them on Sunday to know where to go when they go to find the body, to try to, try to find the body, to try to anoint the body. Now, let me point this out. If, if they were making this up in the, fifth century, in the first century, if they were making this up, they wouldn't have had women as the eyewitnesses to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Let me explain what I mean. I realize that might sound very chauvinistic to say that, but there's a, there's a reason for saying it. Uh, in this day, in this time, women's testimony was not allowed in a court of law. It was not valued. It was not honored. It was not respected. And I, by the way, I think that's wrong. I think that's terrible. I'm glad that women's testimony today is valued where we live, and I think it should be. And it's right that it is today. But in this day, it wasn't. So here's the point. If they were going to make up a story about Jesus dying and rising again, if they were making it up, they would have to make up who the witnesses were to the event. There's no way in the world they would have written in to the story women as being the key witnesses to the death and the resurrection. Right? It wouldn't make sense. They would write in somebody that would be considered a very credible witness. They say, well, then why did they do it? Why are women the key witnesses to this event? And the answer is, because that's how it happened. And it's an historical event. And it, it, it happened. Uh, there, there are some crazy theories to try to explain away Jesus' death and resurrection. They're so crazy, they're almost not even worth mentioning. But they're almost humorous. They're so crazy. One of them is called the swoon theory. It says Jesus didn't really die. He just sort of swooned. He came really close to death, but then he came back. Kind of reminds me of a Clint Eastwood movie, A Fistful of Dollars, where he goes off in the cave and recovers and recoups, and they think he's dead, and he comes back, and he's wearing the, the metal plate on his chest, and they think it's a ghost who's come back. Right? So this argument says Jesus uh, you know, wasn't really dead. He was almost dead, and then he came back, and therefore that produced this Christian faith. Well, there's so many problems with this. Uh, first of all, the Romans were really good at killing. They were professionals at killing, and they knew when a person was dead. They'd done this. They, they, they were skilled at this. Secondly, if Jesus is half dead, he's not coming back, you know, rolling the stone away and coming out. And third, if somehow he was able to do that, the disciples aren't going to turn around and have their lives changed and say, he rose from the dead, he conquered dead, he appeared to us, Jesus is alive. They'd say, oh no, we got to take care of our friend here. He's half dead. We need to take care of him. And so it is just crazy. Some, one theory says it was really someone else who died and not Jesus. They just got confused on who it was. Another theory says, well, the women went to the wrong tomb. They got confused. It was early. It was dark. They went to the wrong tomb. It was empty because they didn't go to the right tomb. And none of these theories, by the way, has any historical evidence behind it. It's just theories that are made up to, to the story that actually does have 
historical evidence, which is that Jesus died and rose again. There's another theory that was rose you know, pretty early on, and in fact the biblical authors address it, uh, called, is influenced by Gnosticism, and it says Jesus wasn't really a man. He was really just spirit. And so therefore it wasn't really a death on the cross because Jesus is just spirit. He's spiritual. Things that are really true and ultimate are spiritual things, not physical things. And the New Testament authors are saying, no, 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 no. He's a man flesh and blood, and he died. And when the sword was pierced through his side, blood came out, water came out. Look at our text, verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea asked for the body of Jesus. There's a body, a physical body. Verse 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. Pilate asked the centurion, is he already dead? Verse 45, he granted the corpse to Joseph. That's an interesting word, the word corpse. What does it mean? It means a body that's not alive. Verse 46, taking him down, they laid him in a tomb. There was a physical death and there was a physical burial. In fact, the Christian faith emphasizes the burial. Listen, for example, to 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Why does Paul emphasize the burial? Isn't it sufficient to say he died and rose again? Why he was buried? Because the burial emphasizes the death. It really was a death. It was a death to such an extent there was a burial. And then, of course, a resurrection. The, the, the biblical authors are giving attention to this. In Matthew's Gospel, you have a Roman soldier guarding the tomb where the body of Jesus Laid. So if a person will not accept the, the historical evidence for the death of Jesus, it reveals something about them. It reveals they will not accept the historical evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. And most likely what's happening is they're saying, I'm just not going to accept the resurrection, therefore I don't believe he died. Because if I accept that he died, the same historical documents that say he died are the same historical documents that say he rose again. So people create these crazy theories. And what it reveals, it reveals a commitment to a worldview that is called naturalism. And I thought it'd be helpful to kind of draw this for you. So I have an image here of this worldview. A lot of people in our world today have this view of the world called naturalism. And basically, they believe that all that exists is the physical world. That's it. The physical world we can see, we can touch, we can taste, uh, we can smell. This is all that exists. There's nothing outside of this world. If there is, we can't know it. So if there's a God who exists outside, we can't know it. All we can know is what we see, what we touch, what we taste, what, what's there. That is it. It's called naturalism because it believe, they believe that basically nature is all that there is. Atoms, molecules, this is all there is. There's nothing beyond it. Now the Christian worldview, comparatively, says yes, there is a physical world, and there's a rhyme and a reason, and there's, uh, you know, stuff, and it, it, there's an order to it. And, uh, you know, you can study it. And yes, we believe that there's, there's stuff is real, that there's really people, and there's really things, and there's matter. Of course we believe this. Of course we believe science helps us understand this physical world that God created with its order and all of that. But we also believe that there's a God who's behind it, who's beyond it. There's a God who created it. In fact, God's the explanation for why we're here. 
Uh, he's distinct from the physical world. He is not the physical world. Some worldviews say God is the physical world. No, no, no. God is distinctly personal and, and, and separate from his physical creation. And therefore, as the creator of the physical world, he can, if he wants, enter into the physical world and do what he wants. If he wants to enter in and suspend the normal laws of nature, what we would call a miracle, by all means, he can do that. Now, the Christian worldview historically doesn't say miracles are just happening all the time. God's just constantly breaking in and withholding you know, the laws of nature and suspending. That's not the Christian worldview. The historical, classical Christian worldview says God has periodically at times, according to the scripture, broken in and suspended the normal laws of nature, the natural way that things normally work. He can do this. He has done this. Now, now let me point out several significant flaws with naturalism. Here's a couple of questions to ask the person who's the naturalist, the person who says, I only believe what I can see, touch, taste, and smell. I don't believe anything else. Uh, number one, how do you explain how we got here? How do you explain this physical world? How did it get here? Why is there something rather than nothing? They just cannot give a consistent, coherent response to that. A second question to ask this person, um, why are people more valuable than other things in the physical world. Like if people are, if all that exists is just stuff, matter, molecules, cells, if that's all that exists, why would you argue that people are more valuable than any other part of creation? Why not just go around killing people if that's what I want to do? Why not? Right? And that brings us to the third thing. How do you explain right and wrong? How do you explain good and evil? Where does it come from? Where does it originate from? If all that exists is this box, this circle, this world, and what we can see, how can you make an argument, a moral argument saying this is wrong and that's right? I don't think you can do it and remain consistent. But the Christian worldview, on the other hand, has, has wonderful explanations. I think the Christian worldview is way more intellectually satisfying, way more experientially satisfying. In other words, it, it accounts for the actual world we live in. And that is, how did we get here? Why is there something rather than nothing? Because there's a God who created it. Why are people more valuable than everything else? Why are all people valuable? The Christian worldview is the, the, the worldview that gives you the, the good answer because all people are created in the image of God. And therefore, all people have value and dignity and we should respect all people and all humanity. Absolutely. We have a reason why. Not just because it seems like it, but because we have an argument. People are created in the image of God. How do we know right from wrong? How do we know that there is right and wrong? How do we know that there is good and evil? How can we even use language like good and evil. Right? People today, are, everybody's using the language evil. Evil according to what? What do you mean by evil? Well, we have an explanation. Evil because it goes against God's standard. We know right and wrong because we're created in the image of God. All people understand some sense of right and wrong. Why? Because we're created in the image of God. And of course, in addition to this, God gave us his law. And so we can know even more with more accuracy and more precision what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil. As I mentioned, I personally believe the Christian worldview is the most intellectually satisfying view of the world that's out there. And, and I think it's the most experientially satisfying view of the world that's out there. And it leaves open the possibility that there is a God who has acted in history and has, at times, done miraculous things. And that's what the Christian worldview teaches. 
And I, I hope you're open. I hope you're not so closed-minded here today that you say, I won't even consider it. I hope you'll at least be willing to consider the possibility that there is a God who created everything, who can, if He wants, break into His world, suspending the natural laws, and do what He wants. And the argument of the Bible, the central argument of the Bible is, there is a God who has done this specifically in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God who came into this world in order to die in order to rise again. The, the, the death of Jesus happened according to the Scriptures. Secondly, the death of Jesus matters. Last week, we pointed to several Old Testament texts that were pointing forward to Jesus' death on the cross, and we, we talked about how in Mark's Gospel we see the fulfillment of these things. And I want to continue to show you more Old Testament texts that are fulfilled in the death of Jesus once again, I've included the references in your bulletin. I've also included it in the PowerPoint up here behind me. Uh, so first of all, we have the darkness. There are several places in the Old Testament that talk about a coming darkness over the land. A coming judgment over the land that's marked by darkness. Listen, for example, to Amos chapter 8, verse 9. And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon. Notice the specific reference to noon, at noon. And darken the earth in broad daylight. Now look with me at Mark 15, verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. You know what the sixth hour is? It's noon. Six hours after sunrise at 6 a.m. And it lasts, it's dark until 3 p.m. So it's dark for roughly three hours. Right in the middle of the day, supposed to be daylight. No, no natural explanation. It's a supernatural event. It's God's judgment. We'll talk more about what it means, but for now I want you to see the Old Testament is talking about this event, and now it happens in Jesus. Secondly, Jesus is forsaken. Psalm 22.1 My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Now look with me at Mark 15, verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is one of the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross, recorded in Mark, also recorded in Matthew. They thought it was important enough to include the original language that Jesus spoke this saying in. He spoke it in Aramaic. They thought it was important enough, they gave us the Aramaic version, and then they translated it for the Greek readers and gave us the Greek translation. Of course, we have English Bibles giving us the English translation. This is similar, I think, to Jesus using the term Abba. And the New Testament authors retained the language, the Aramaic language. They didn't just translate it, Father, they gave it to us in the, the original language that Jesus spoke it in. Abba, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani. That's how important it is, giving us the very language Jesus spoke it in. And some people hearing him say this thought he was calling out for Elijah. Maybe he's calling out for Elijah. Apparently it sounded similar. But instead, Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this raises the question, if Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, does that make it not so much prophetic? Prophetic would suggest... They said it would happen and then it happened. Jesus here is quoting 
the passage. And my response would be, you know, maybe I could see you making that argument if it weren't for all the other prophetic elements in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a key prophetic passage pointing forward to Jesus and his death. We looked last week, we talked about the fact that Psalm 22 talks about the fact that he will be mocked. And now here he is being mocked. It talked about the fact that he would be crucified, that his hands and his feet would be nailed, pierced. And now here they're being pierced. It talks about how they will gamble for his clothes. And of course, we see them gambling for his clothes. Psalm 22 is a very important psalm for this. But let me point out a third element that we see here, and that is the rich man's tomb. Isaiah 53.9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now look with me at Mark 15, verse 46. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. So this is Joseph of Arimathea, not Joseph the father of Jesus. He apparently had resources. He had a linen shroud to wrap the body of Jesus in. Uh, Matthew also tells us it was Joseph's tomb. He sort of gave his tomb, personal tomb, for this purpose. John tells us that Nicodemus was there as well, providing spices, a lot of spices, costly spices, to anoint the body. And John's Gospel tells us that, that these things happened in fulfillment of the Scriptures. In other words, John is explicitly saying these things are happening. And they're happening in fulfillment of what the Old Testament said. And John says, and I'm writing this to you so that you'll believe. In other words, John says, I want you to believe. I want you to have faith in Jesus. Therefore, I want to show you how the events that are happening in the person of Jesus were, were prophesied in the Old Testament. It's not just happening. It's not just random. There's a plan in place. Uh, my kids I have four kids. We homeschool our kids. So part of the homeschooling experience means we get to hear them complain about some of their schooling. And sometimes they'll complain. And say, Why are we studying this? What's the purpose of this? Why do I have to memorize this? And I, I've heard it over the years, so I went back this past week and said, what would you say are some of the key things you had to memorize or learn that at the time you said, I just don't see why. But now you can look back and go, okay, okay I get it now. And the, the two top answers they gave me were multiplication tables. I think everybody has felt that way, right? I remember feeling that way. Like, why do I have to memorize multiplication tables? Isn't that the purpose of a calculator? Right? Of course, my kids don't appeal to the calculator. They appeal to their phone. That's what I have my phone for, right? Uh, that wouldn't have made sense, uh, you know, when I was gr growing up learning multiplication tables, your phone. What are you talking about? How would your phone help you with multiplication tables? Of course, it makes complete sense today. The, the other item they mentioned was learning Latin. When they first started learning Latin, you just like any language, you learn the declensions, you learn the endings. What are the first person endings? What are the second person endings? What are the, what are the plural endings? What are the singular endings? And you're just memorizing this. You know, it just seems like nonsense. What, what, what does this possibly mean? And then later on, you stick with it, and later on, you start to read, and you go, okay, now I get why I had to memorize these endings, and now this is first person, and that's second person, and this is plural, and this is singular. It makes more sense. And so at the time, you know, when you're learning things, especially as a kid, you say, this is pointless, this is meaningless, why am I doing this? And later down the road, you can look back and go, okay, 
I get it. Now, these were building blocks that make a lot more sense, and now I'm able to, you know, understand. And in a similar way, at the time that Jesus is dying, it has to appear pointless. Right? What's the meaning of this? You know, is this just another criminal dying on another cross, another Roman cross? It, it, from the disciples' perspective, it appears like it's over, the story's over. Uh, this is the end. You know, evil has won. Where is God in this? Evil has clearly won. This is not good. This can't be good. But the, 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 the New Testament is saying to us, there is a meaning, there's a reason. This is actually God's plan from the very beginning. When God created the world from the very beginning, He was telling us He was going to do this. That's the point of the, the Old Testament prophecies. God is committing to this, and this event is not a pointless event. In fact, just the opposite. It is the central event of all of human history. It's not just one interesting historical thing that took place somewhere back in the day. This is God saying, this is the event that defines all other events. This is the event that changes the course of human history. This is the event that matters. And my question for you this morning is this, do you get that? Do you get that this event matters like none other? That this is the event, that every other event is to be interpreted by this event? See, my guess is most of the people in this room, I'm guessing you're not naturalists. You know, if you are, I'm glad you're here. You're welcome here anytime. I'm guessing most of you believe there's a God who created. I'm guessing most of you believe this God can enter into the world and suspend the natural laws if he wants. I'm guessing most of you believe he has, specifically in the person of Jesus, through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. But my question for you now is this. Do you get that that one event changes everything else? Do you get that every other event only matters in light of that event? And that event defines all others. I hope you get this morning that it matters. And this brings us now to talk about why. Why does it matter? What does it mean? What does the death of Jesus mean? We could answer this question in a number of ways. Uh, last week we looked at two answers to this question. This week we're going to look at two more. First of all, the death of Jesus means that we now have direct access to God. There are several supernatural events that take place around Christ's death. Matthew tells us the earth shook. Mark tells us the curtain of the temple was torn in two. This huge curtain. Look at verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. A lot of commentators will point out top to bottom is significant. It means God is doing this. Right? It didn't just happen. It's not just random. God is tearing apart the curtain. What's the meaning of the curtain? The curtains once separated people from the Holy of Holies. The unique presence of God in the temple. And there was this curtain saying, you cannot enter here. There's only one person once a year who can enter here, and that's only with certain qualifications. And after he has performed certain rituals, he can enter no one else. The curtain was important as a symbolic way of separating the people from God. When Jesus dies, the curtain of the temple is torn. And God is saying something by tearing the temple by the, through the death of His Son. He's saying, it's a new day. It's a new era. Something new is here. In fact, Jesus has already told us the temple is not going to be around much longer. Right? The God-ordained temple will no longer exist. And now we have the curtain of the the separating the people from the Holy of Holies 
torn. Why? It's a new day. Jesus is here. Jesus' death brings about a newness in relationship to the presence of God. Jesus is the new temple. He's a greater temple. He's the ultimate temple. There's no more temple. He's the temple. He's the presence of God on earth. There's coming a day when neither on this mountain nor on that mountain will they worship. They'll worship in spirit and truth because Jesus is the temple. He's the presence of God. There's no more priests because Jesus is the priest. He's the ultimate priest. He's greater than every former priest. There's no more need for a priest. What's a priest do? A priest helps you access God. You don't need help accessing God. You got your priest. You got Jesus Christ. And there's no more sacrifice. No more animal sacrifice. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And by His sacrifice, you can go directly to God and be right with God. Because of Jesus' death, you can access God and go directly to Him. There's no more separation. Jesus provides the way to access Him. That's why the author of Hebrews says it like this. Hebrews 10, verses 19-22. through Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We can draw near because of Jesus. And it's not just certain people. It's all people. It's people like this Roman centurion who's the first person to say, verse 39, truly this man was a son of God. Formerly, the Roman centurion would not have been allowed to enter the Holy of Holies and many places in the temple. And now here he is with the blood of Jesus on him, literally on him. And he's the first person that the Bible tells us was the first person to confess after Jesus' death, truly this was the son of God. I wonder why that is. I think God's saying something. Even this Roman centurion who just crucified my son, who's considered a pagan, who is considered dirty, who formerly would not have been allowed to enter anywhere near the Holy of Holies, is now here he is confessing Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus died for this reason, to provide access for all so that all might recognize he's the Son of God and have access to God. Second, The death of Jesus means we can be adopted. In verse 33, it says there was darkness over the whole land. Once again, another supernatural element that doesn't need to be explained by some physical explanation, a natural explanation. It was God's judgment. There's darkness over the land. In fact, we're going to sing a song here in a second. It's got a great line in it. Well, might the sun and darkness hide and shut His glories in when Christ the mighty Maker died. For man, the creature's sin. We're going to sing about this darkness over the land. Darkness is a sign of God's judgment. You see this throughout the Old Testament. When there's darkness in the middle of the day, it's God's judgment. So who is God judging when Jesus dies on the cross? And the answer is, Jesus is being judged by God. Jesus is experiencing the wrath of God as He dies. How do you know that? Well, look at what He says. Verse 34, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what caused him the anguish in the garden. If there's any way for this cup to pass over me, let it pass over me. Jesus knows what's coming. He's about to drink the cup of God's wrath. He's already been abandoned by his disciples. He's already been abandoned by the very ones he came to save. And now he's going to be abandoned by God, his father. 
And this is really the gospel right here. If you get this, you get the heart of the Christian faith. Jesus is the Son of God who is one with God and who is God. And yet at the cross, as the Son, He's being forsaken by the Father. And He's doing that so that we who are not sons, we who are orphans, we who are forsaken by God because of our sin, might be able to come in and be called sons. That's the Gospel. I hope you get that this morning. Think about it. Jesus is the Son who is forsaken so that you who are not the Son can be brought in and adopted as God's son and daughter. That's the Gospel. He didn't deserve any of it. He willingly took it on and was willingly forsaken and treated as if He's not God's Son. Treated as if He's a sinner. Why? So that we who actually are sinners, we who are far from God, can actually be brought in and adopted. This is how Paul says it in Galatians 4, verses 4 through 6. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. It's one thing to say we can be forgiven because of Jesus' death. It's another thing to say we can be right with God because of Jesus' death. But here we are saying we can actually be adopted as sons and daughters because of Jesus' death. The ultimate benefit of the cross, the ultimate benefit of Jesus' death is adoption. It's the ultimate benefit for us. We get to be adopted, brought in, seated at God's table and called sons and daughters of the living King. And this is the reason why God created us in the first place. To know us, love us, to relate to us like father, son, But we rebelled and we became orphans and we were forsaken and rightly so. And God could have left us to our own ways. But he chose to break in and enter into the world miraculously in the person of Jesus in order to be forsaken and lay down his life and die on the cross to take it up so that if we would simply look on him and believe on him and trust on him, we could be made right with God and even more, we could be adopted as sons and daughters. The death of Jesus happened. The death of Jesus matters. The question for you and me this morning is, do you get it? Do you get why it matters? Do you get the meaning of it? Have you had it applied to you? I'm not asking you, do you believe Jesus died and rose again? I'm I'm guessing most of you do. If you don't, be glad to have that conversation. I'm assuming you believe it. My next question is, have you had the work of Jesus directly applied to you? Have you experienced it applied to you? How do you say, well, what does that mean? How do you do that? It's very simple. You recognize your sin. Your sin has led you to be forsaken by God, under God's curse, under God's judgment, under God's wrath. And you simply look to Jesus on the cross and trust that He was forsaken in your place for you. He took the punishment, the penalty for you. You deserve. And you say, I believe and I'm trusting that He did that for me. And I'm relying on Him for my right standing with God, and for my adoption. And therefore, by His Spirit, I call out, Abba, Father. And and the Father calls me Son. And the Father will call you daughter. Make sure this morning you're trusting in Jesus Christ so that you can be right with God, and even more so, you can be adopted by God and loved by God as son and daughter. Let's pray.
Father, we come now recognizing our sin and our rebellion naturally leads us to be forsaken under Your curse, under Your judgment, under Your wrath. And I just want to pause now and give everybody in this room, everybody online, a chance to confess our personal sin against You. 